0: Them, and so you're going to have to go through and you're going to have to do this ministry and God has a call to action for that church um, and so in each of these circumstances where God says I know we have an understanding that there is no real time when the church can just sit on its backside and just relax and say we got it all right now we can just coast into heaven I don't see that anywhere however you want to view the seven letters of seven churches whether it's Over ages, which that's really been dispelled, and I don't know if anyone, uh, well I shouldn't say, I I, I know some, but there's not very many in our day and age that really hold to that perspective of the seven letters any longer. Uh, We really understand that these kinds of churches are all over today, um, and we also recognize that it really isn't descriptive of church history. We cannot map out the history of the church in Revelations 2 and 3. The reason they want to do that, by the way, this is a side note, um, is they want to have the entire church age before chapter 4 because they've already introduced the concept in chapter 4, which is what? The rapture. They are going to find the rapture in chapter 4, so they're trying to find the church age somewhere in Revelation, so they find it in chapters 2 and 3, and so they make these seven churches, the seven ages of the church. The problem is church history has not borne this out, and we cannot find these ages really uh, in the church, uh, and really, globally, it's, we're going to find all of these present in various forms and places. So let's go ahead and look at them, and again, we're, we're looking today at what does God uh, declare is that they're doing right, and so we're going to really talk about what God finds fault with them next week. But tonight we want to talk about, does God know it when you're doing it right? Does God recognize it? And what what does it mean for the church? And again, is it something that we can take pride in? Or is it something that should bring us humbly to God and say, how can we do it better? Or what are we missing as we're doing things in this fashion and that fashion? And of course, one of the strongest churches in that respect is the church at Ephesus. The first one in chapter 2, verse... uh, Two, it says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and found them liars. You have persevered and have patience, have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. What a great evaluation of a church. Now, a lot of those are in the negative, but they're in a positive negative. In other words, this is good that you don't do this, that you are careful with this. And so we look through it and so this is an active church. This church is out there working um, they are, they are uh, faithful, um, they're persevering, they're enduring. That's really the word patience is I'm enduring. Uh, I'm, I'm holding my own. I'm standing fast. Uh, not only are they holding their own in their activity, their works for God, but also in their position with God that they um, are willing to examine people and to find out who's telling the truth and who's lying. They're not just taking everything that comes down the, the pike there. They're going to evaluate it. And here are some people who claim to have biblical authority, and they're going to evaluate according to God's Word and the Holy Spirit, and they're going to identify, you're a false teacher, get out of here. We have no toleration for you, we have no patience for you, Um, get out. And so we're calling you what you are, you're a liar. You sit here and say, God says when God hasn't said, and you're a false prophet. And so they have no patience for that, they have no... Uh, interest in that, but and they're doing the work of God, so they're they're sound in their practice, they're sound in their doctrine, and in their application of it. It says that uh, they've labored for their namesake and not become weary. They have persevered in that. They're enduring, which is a big, big theme throughout the book of Revelation: is endure. You've got to make it to the end. You have got to wait this and faithfully serve the Lord. You can't just uh, put yourself on pause and wait for the Lord's return, nor can you just shortchange the circuit of what it takes to get from point A to point B. There is going to be tribulation in this meantime. There is going to be opposition. There are going to be things you're going to have to deal with. And you can't just pretend this, you know, you, that it's not happening. You can't put your head in the ground. You can't do it. And so these people have done that. They've endured they're showing this, this perseverance in their faith. They are active doctrinally. They are active in their works, in their activities of church, in their ministry. Um, and from all our perspective, we would look at that church and say, that's the kind of church I want to join. And you would be good to do that. Um, but God says, I have one thing. I have a problem with you. And we're going to talk about that next week. It's so. That they're even in this church that is doing the right things, has all the right doctrine, has um, endured uh, for God's name's sake. Um, there are still some issues, but look at what they're doing. And it's not that we abandon those three things because God has issue with them. God is saying these are right and true and good. And in fact, these three categories of the work of the church are going to kind of form the structure for what's coming. In terms of when God takes other churches to task he's going to take them for task for either not doing the work for following every false teaching coming down the line or for not enduring he said you guys have got that figured out and so praise the Lord for that aspect and so when we look at the church we're going to look at these three and they're going to kind of form the structure for tonight's message is are we doing the actions that God wants us to do are we holding to the doctrine that he wants us to hold to, and are we willing to endure, to persevere, to hold to it no matter what? No matter what anyone says, no matter what uh, it costs us, uh, no matter uh, whether there are other errors that are introduced, I'm going to hold to what is true. I'm going to hold my ground for God. And these are the three aspects of church life that we really want to investigate and again, we're going to investigate on the side of them doing things right. And so we're not going to abandon those things because, well, the Ephesus church, they didn't, they, they, God had a problem with them. Yeah, but he didn't have a problem with this part. And I think it's important that we designate that. That God took issue with five of these seven churches. I agree. But only one of the churches does he really take complete issue with them. He has aspects of their ministry that he wants us to know are pleasing in his sight, that are good, but they aren't good enough by themselves. And that's going to draw us into the, the rest of the letters of what we need to work on then. And so we have the right ministry, the right work, we have the right doctrine where we are examining teachers and we know that these guys are liars. They're, telling, they're not telling the truth about what God says and they are persevering, they're enduring, even though they're coming up against opposition or hardship, they are going to do this. And there's one other thing that we're going to pick up on here in the Ephesus church. Um, He has the verse 4 and 5, which are the negatives uh, of what God has against them. We're going to study that next week. But in verse 6 says, even with regard to that, there's something specific here that I want to point out. But this you have. Um... And the negatives are about their passion and about their, the desire of their heart. They're uh, hungry and thirsting. He says, even, even with that problem, you have this, and that is, you are passionate about <clears throat> the Nicolaitans. You hate them as much as I hate them. You don't have enough passion for me. We're going to talk about that next week. But you do have a lot of passion against the Nicolaitans. And I just want to share with you that in our modern age, nobody is willing to step out and do that. Well, I shouldn't say no. Very few are willing to step out and incur the wrath of society by hating error. Let's think about it. I mean, what if a guy stood up and said, this group is teaching error. They are liars. They are apostate. Oh, how could you say that about that? Don't you know there's Good people in that church, yes. But that's not indicative of what the church teaches. So we're going to talk about the Nicolaitans a little bit um, because several of the churches are going to succumb to the Nicolaitans. So, so here we have a church that says we hate them with a passion. We don't want those people anywhere around us. We don't want them in our church. We won't tolerate them. We, we, we drive them out of here. We won't let them in here. We won't let them put a foot in the door. We don't let the Nicolaitans in here. We hate them. And God says, that's great, because I hate them too. Well, who are these Nicolaitans? And what what do we have to be passionate? Uh, Of all the passions the Ephesians have lost, they haven't lost this passion. They hate the Nicolaitans. Who are they? What are they involved? Uh, The fact is we don't really know a lot about the Nicolaitans. Um, They're mentioned here. Some of the early church fathers um, wrote about them. And from their writing, we understand what they came to believe. Uh, Remember, this is probably one of the reasons that Revelation was written later rather than earlier, because the Nicolaitan sect or error had been introduced to the church, had taken some time. And so uh, some people attribute this to Nicholas, who was one of the seven, um, but there really isn't any strong evidence for that line. Um, Some people believe that it was a perversion of something he was teaching. And so when Nicholas died... Um, those that were under his teaching uh, perverted what he was teaching. That he was teaching something similar to what Paul taught in the book of Galatians, but this group just took it way too far. But what were the Nicolaitans all about? They were all about licentiousness. Now there's a word you don't hear very much in our day. In Galatians, Paul talks about avoiding legalism by expressing our liberty in Christ. That we are free from the law. Well, can you imagine how we could take and pervert that? Well, Paul anticipated that in Galatians, Says you aren't free from the law of love, that love is the boundary of our actions, that that we, in our love of God and love for others, that we are going to uh, have that be the perimeter of our behavior, that if it is not loving uh, toward God or loving toward man, we are not going to participate in that. And so, because I love my neighbor, I am not going to go and... um, break up his marriage by having an affair with his wife. And so that precludes that. I'm not going to participate, not mention the fact that I love God and don't want to uh, sin against him in that fashion. And so that's Galatians says the law isn't what controls us now. We have a higher law. We are free to function in this parameter, which is I determine what is loving and what isn't loving. And I'm going to participate in what is is uh, dictated by a godly love, and so um, the Nicolaitans though took this and they made it license is the word we always use in our theological circles. They confuse liberty with license. Liberty means I am free from the law to practice my faith in a loving manner before righteous God. License says I'm free the law from the law to do whatever I want. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. And the Nicolaitans were connected with uh, a lot of immorality. Uh, in fact, if we look forward, um, this is going to get into uh, next week a little bit more. Uh, we can look forward into the. Um, da, 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 da. What am I looking for? By Tyra, I think. Nope, that's Jezebel. Where is the other place the Nicolaitans are talked about in the negative way because they have tolerated them. Oh, it is it is uh, the next one in Smyrna, uh, in verse 15. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is the thing I hate. And uh, again, we find that they have been caught up in sexual immorality and idols, which has been compared to Balaam and Balak. Um, that here we have an opportunity to stand for righteousness and Satan. Just like with Balaam, Balaam couldn't curse the church. I'm sorry, Balaam couldn't curse Israel. And so, what does Balaam do? He goes to Balak and he says, Okay, God has forced me to bless them three times, but here's what you can do to get them in trouble with God. And so the Nicolaitans were somehow involved in this to some degree as well, although they are distinguished here. And so, the early church fathers associated them with people that just believe they could live however they wanted. I can live how I want. Some of that was wrapped up in some weird ideas um, of that we serve God with our spirit and the flesh doesn't matter to God. And so what I do in the flesh doesn't count. So therefore I can do anything in my body I want and because my spirit is what God's interested in, not my flesh. And they miss the connection between your physicalness and your spiritualness. They disjointed those and then you could do whatever you want in your body and that would be okay. As long as your spirit is right. Well, that's not okay with God. License is not something that He approves. And so you can't just do whatever you want and then come and please God on your terms. And this was the practice of the Nicolaitans according to the early church fathers, is that they were they were out there just practicing license, they just did whatever they want. They thought they had permission. They were free from the law. And so that meant the law of God, of Moses, the law of the Romans. It didn't matter. I'm free. I can do whatever I please. Does that sound familiar? Anybody have that philosophy these days at all? Anywhere? Oh my yes. You can't judge me. Right? How many of you heard that? How many of you said that guys got many you said that. How many of you heard that? You can't judge me whether I'm doing right or wrong. How can, you know, I can do whatever I like as long as my conscience is good with it. Right? Oh, wrong. God hates that attitude. God hates it. That's a frightening term when God says, I hate this. Uh, and we ought to take real... That might be a whole series of messages. All things God says he hates. God hates that. Well, if God hates that, it's not the best thing to come into the church. So the one thing that the Ephesians church was passionate about was to make sure that this attitude, this teaching did not come into their church. We are not going to let this come in, that we can come into church, do whatever we like the rest of the week, and come as long as we're okay, and cleaned up, and washed, and have new clothes, and have a smile on on Sunday. We can do whatever we want, say whatever we want, do whatever we want the rest of the week. That's is the way of the Nicolaitans and the Ephesians didn't want any of it. If you're going to come into our church and claim to be a Christian, then be a Christian. Don't come in here and do like the world and bring it into the church. Don't do it. They hated that. They hated the hypocrisy of it. That you say that somehow you can live however you like um, and God should be happy with getting his Sundays out of you or even a couple hours of Sundays out of you. And so we have this passion um, against the Nicolaitans. And God recognizes it. He says, this is great. Now, I wish you had that much passion for me, but at least you have passion against that. And I hate that. You should hate that. And that's tremendous. You should hate the things that God hates. If you want to know what God hates, he's got a list of seven things in in the Proverbs. He's got uh, several statements that he hates this and he hates that um, do a little study and hate those things with a passion. Don't be afraid to be passionate about it as a church. That we hate that. We don't want anything to do with that in our church. And if, if you can't muster up passion for God, at least muster up passion against the things that God is against. And God will recognize that. That you passionately don't want this in your church. Because it has produced a lot of problems and it's something God hates. Take a stand against it. And so these are several aspects, the three aspects of the Ephesians church and then the passage they showed in one area, particularly of their doctrine and practice and endurance, was that they hated Nicolaitans. Let's go to the next church very quickly, um, and that is in Smyrna. Again, uh, what is the situation in Smyrna? The Smyrna uh, is uh, a poor church by, by human measure. Um, But the Bible says you are rich, and uh, you are also in the place where there's the synagogue of Satan. It's interesting terminology. The synagogue of Satan, I would offend almost every Jew to talk about their synagogues as a place where Satan is worshipped and not God. Synagogue is a Jewish place of study of God's word. The gathering of the Jews. And here Christ is saying the Jews who are Jews in name and in in liturgy but they rejected their Messiah and therefore they are really in their meeting in a synagogue really the instrument of Satan instead of the instrument of God. And so you have that. Uh, you are, you have had tribulation and poverty. You have had trouble. You have had opposition. You are, are a very poor church uh, physically. Uh, this church um, was probably made up historically record itself was made up mostly of slaves. That there was a, a great a coming to Christ of the slave realm of Smyrna uh, in that community. And so the poverty was there, even though the community wasn't necessarily impoverished. The church was characterized that way. They were, uh, had to deal with the blasphemy of Jews who decried Christ. And uh, they took their stand and Christ said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Your resources are few, but don't be afraid. And so, is poverty something we should strive for? Well, probably not. In terms of physical poverty, but it should be very, uh, it should be a strong warning to us when it's, the poor church that God is pleased with and not the wealthy church. The wealthy church God is ready to get rid of. And we might, in terms of um, comparing ourselves to other American churches, might be considered pretty poor. Um, But compared to the rest of the world, we're still in the top 2%, 3% of the world in wealth. Um, As individuals, Some of you are well into the top 1% globally, even if you don't claim to be that um, in our country. Uh, We're way up there. We are the wealthy church. And so we can sit here and say, well, we identify with that. Um, uh, Look how small our budget is. And there is no American church in this country that can identify with Smyrna. Okay? There just isn't one. And uh, you need to go to some other places other lands to find churches like the Church of Smyrna that have few physical resources, that are enduring difficult opposition, but they are standing, and they're having uh, attacks from religious groups and blaspheming our Lord, um, and they're suffering. They're getting thrown into prison. Um, there's going to be a, a tribulation of ten days, it says, and his statement is, don't be afraid, but be faithful. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid that you don't have enough resources to match or to meet what's coming at you. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of the opposition that's coming. You just don't need to be afraid. Um, and fear mongering among the body of Christ is just horrible. And I, I've personally been in that situation. Alright? Um, and I, I've spoken out against it, uh, and gotten some pretty nasty feedback from it, um, and you guys know that, I don't need to recount a lot of that, but um, to go in, and, and here's modern fear-mongering, and you guys get it in letters from organizations that are looking for money, um, oh, if we don't raise this kind of funds, we're going to have to close the doors. How many of you have ever heard a pastor say that? I have offerings don't start going up, we're going to have to close these doors, people. Really? Is that really the issue? What keeps the church doors open or closed is the offering? <laughs> no. God has sufficient resources to keep every church open that needs to be open. I've been in an organization that, and I was a part of that, that and, and vehemently spoke against it, which got me in trouble, when we would produce a budget, we'd go out, and, and we'd fearmonger among the churches. We have this budget shortfall. Oh, this is an emergency budget shortfall. Well, there was no budget shortfall. We created it on paper so we could raise funds. It was a lie. It was fear-mongering among God's people. And people respond because they don't know it's a lie. And they say, oh, there's a budget shortfall. This organization is in deep trouble and, and I need to give to them. Fearmongering is not the work of God. God says, I know you're poor. People who are really poor, not us who claim to be poor, who aren't. I know your poverty. Don't be afraid. I know the opposition is coming against you. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. I'll take care of you. Oh, that I would hear more of that coming out of our. Christian parachurch organizations. But you don't hear it. You hear, oh, we need, we need, we need, we need, we need. Oh, this is, we're in trouble, we're in trouble, we're in trouble. We're not in trouble. Unless God has stopped being the owner of everything. Then we're in trouble. So here the poor church, it has no physical resources, and they have... Uh, opposition in in the community, which wouldn't be surprising. You're dealing with largely a slave church. Uh, That means that, what are they coming up against? They're coming up against unbelieving masters. They're coming up against a financial community that uh, can oppress them. And they have very few resources to react against that. And God says, some of you are going to prison for your faith. Some of you, it's going to be even more costly than that. Just be faithful. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Because I will reward you. And so we're looking for a church that isn't invested in fear. We're looking for a church that is faithful and is not focused on their lack of resources because the real church never lacks resources. Okay? We never lack the resources physically, materially, to do the work of God. There's plenty of resource for us to do the work of God. The real issue about doing the work of God is about the hearts within the church. And if we have a church that has no fear and is faithful, it can do anything for God. God can pull resources from anywhere. He owns it all. So we can't function in fear. We can't be driven that way. We trust in the Lord. And so we have a great example here in Smyrna that God honors them in that way. We then come to this. This might take an extra couple weeks. We come to the third church and their resources. I know your works. Boy, these guys are in a hard place. They're in a place where Satan's throne is. But look at it, verse 13. You hold fast to my name and don't deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful witness or martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is a church that that is holding fast. They're up against it. They're, they're up against a rock. They are really struggling. They are up against the powerhouse of Satan. Essentially Satan's throne. And this is another Port city just north of Ephesus, about 100 miles or so, and Smyrna's in between, um, but a uh, port city, and, and they're, they're up against it. They're, this is a place of, of, of emperor worship and things like that, and uh, there's a lot they're having to struggle against, we're going to talk about hopefully next week if I can get through the rest of these. But we find that you're doing the work and you are willing to endure. So what's missing in the three? They're doing the work. They're willing to endure. What's missing? The doctrine. And all the issues here from now on are going to be revolving around doctrinal issues that are penetrate into that church. But they're doing the work. They're 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 seeking to serve God. They've got a lot of opposition. They're in a really hard place. I hear missionaries talk a oh, lot. This is a hard place. And I remember going back to, I'm working in a really hard community. And I don't know of any pastor that's ever described community as, this is just a wide open place for ministry. I, I just, they all tell me it's hard. It's a hard work here. People are stubborn. i was like, is that new? Is that just isolated? I think that's universal. The people are stubborn in their sin and hard heart against Christ. And, and um, you pray for the Lord to overcome that. And so we find this. Uh, they're doing the work. They're in a really difficult place. God knows what they're up against. And they're not denying Him. They're even having some of their leadership die. One name, by name. And you stood. You didn't shy away. You didn't shirk off. You didn't just deny Christ. You recognize the cost. And your problem isn't the external opposition. It's the internal problems we're going to talk about next week. But externally, you're, you're handling it. Now you just got a clean house inside. But out here, you are doing the work against tremendous opposition. You are where Satan's throne is. And sometimes I feel like that's here. And I think that's probably most pastors in America feel like that's where we live. We live in the place that Satan's throne. Because everything evil is elevated. Everything good and godly is denigrated in our society. But it's not just here. I've traveled enough to know that that's going on around the world right now. Um, that men are calling good evil and evil good. Oh, let's, I'm coming out of the closet. Oh, that's wonderful. I've saved myself for marriage and we're getting married and, and we're both virgins. Oh, you're what's wrong with you? That's laughable. You see how we call good evil and evil good? That's where we live. And in the midst of that, we need to do the work of God. That can't stop us from doing the work of God. And we have to endure. We've got to stand. We can't deny Christ. Even in the midst of this kind of opposition of being where Satan's throne is. Let's press on. Church number four um, is the church of Thyatira. And again, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And uh, they're just getting more and more. This is a church that's growing in all of those areas. Um, Again, this is the first church that love is mentioned um, as a positive element. Um, So they're serving God, they're doing some great things for God, they are enduring, and again, their works are even improving, they're even growing in them, they are learning that they can trust God and do more and more and more things for God, and again, what is lacking in the list is their doctrine. And so in the midst of this, we're going to have some issues, but we're also going to see some practice issues that are, are going on there, but we find that they're loving God, which means, the word love here is referring to both loving God and loving others. And so your works are one of love. They are rightly motivated. And there's a passion behind them. And you are serving. You are um, exercising faith. That is, you're going well beyond your resources, like the Church of Smyrna. Uh, You are putting action to your beliefs. And of course, your endurance or your patience. And you are increasing in these. And this is a tremendous statement for God to make. When God comes in and says, You're maturing, and in that maturation process, I see your works getting greater. I see you doing more and more for my kingdom. And, and, and it's, it's fired by your faith and your love and your desire to serve me. And, and this God praises. This is what needs to be going on in our churches that we don't become complacent that, well, I'm doing enough. Someone else has got to do more. Someone else has got to pick it up. In our situation in Haiti, I kept waiting for another church to finish the job. Can another church just pick that up and finish it? I mean, we've poured so much into it. But that attitude is wrong. Rather, we should look for opportunities to increase and increase and increase our participation in ministry. Not to kind of say, well, we've done our bit, now it's time for someone else to kick in. I don't find that spirit, one that pleases God. God says, listen, your works of late have been more than your works early. Um, and that's tremendous. And that I applaud you for and praise you for. And it's all built upon your love, faith, and patience. And if we're lacking that, the place that we need to start examining is, well, have we lost our love for God and each other? Have we lost our love for the church? Have, are, we, are we weak in our faith? Um, This church had some excellent attributes, and God says, this is tremendous. There's some issues like all of them, but this is what we need to be about. Let's press on. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Here's what I have to say about what's good about this church. picture. Uh, they have a works. They have a name, but it's all a lie. You're dead. You have the appearance. I know what your works are. I know that you have a name, that you're alive. I know you have the appearance, but you're dead. Be watchful. Strengthen things which remain, that are ready to die. There's just a little, little, little glimmer of some good things going on in this church. But it's all external. And internally, there's just death. And and the works that they are doing, it says in verse 2, I have not found your works perfect before God. Um, Everything you're doing is about to die. Um, And... It is possible for us to be doing the works in a manner that displeases God instead of pleasing Him, even if the works themselves appear to be living and valuable. God knows what's inside. And we'll talk a lot more about this church next week. Let's go on to the sixth church, and that's Philadelphia. And again, verse 8, I know your works. And out of that, um, God says... uh, I have said before you, open door and no one can shut it. Why has God opened the door of ministry for this church so wide? He says, you have a little strength. And that doesn't mean that they are weaklings, but rather that in the midst of all, this is, by the way, this is the the youngest community, smallest, probably uh, one of the smallest, at least one of the two smallest of the seven cities. He says, you've got some strength there. You've got strength. Um, you've kept my word, you have endured, you've not denied my name. So they have works, they have strength, which I would apply to their doctrine. You have kept his word, which I also apply to doctrine. And you have not denied my name, which is endurance. And so they have matched those up, and apparently with the passion that Ephesus was lacking. And God says, listen... Um, I don't need much, but, I, but that little strength that you have is enough, and I'm going to open a wide open door of, of ministry for you that you can walk in. No one can shut it, and uh, it's for you to get out there and to get busy. And uh, do they have no opposition? No. Verse 9 tells us they have opposition, um, they have, uh, but they've avoided it. They've kept it out. They've kept out the false teaching. They've kept out the opposition. They have endured persecution. It's not that they have no no opposition from externally or internally. They have endured both, and they have kept God's word. And fundamentally, we can have the works and the endurance, but if we want really the full praise of God in our church, it comes down to this idea of keeping the word of finding our strength in keeping the Word of God as a church. Then, of course, we come to the last one, and then I'm going to wrap up because I'm late again. And uh, verse 15, I know your works. And again, like the dead church in Sardis the, that claim to be alive, he knows that their works are empty. They're just on the outside. God knows these works, that they are just wishy-washy. They're not worth anything. They're just here and there. So we have two churches that God has very. I know your works, and they're not worth talking about. Um, <clears throat> the only exception to these two churches is in Sardis. There's a few. There's a few of you. In Sardis. We have have this great praise for Philadelphia tucked in between two churches that God has very little good to say, one nothing good to say, and the other one, only one thing that he says that really is going to capture our attention and uh, this hypocritical church that's all external and nothing but death inside is in verse 4 of chapter 3. You have a few names who have not defiled their garments. They hear you're in a dead church, but you're one of the few who are isn't going to let it soil you. You're not going to let the death that you're surrounded by in your church make you dead. You're not going to soil your garments with that. And so God can distinguish between the church and individuals within the church. There's a few names. There's a few individuals in the church of Sardis. And we don't even find that in Laodicea. In Laodicea, it's just, uh, I'm rebuking you. I'm not chasing you. Um, because you claim to have it all and you have nothing. You're just, just, just wishy-washy to get. You're not hot, you're not cold. Once you to spit you out. We're going to talk a lot about them in the week to come. But we find that God looks at these three categories of the church. And there are three categories that we need to be attentive to with a fourth that we're going to element that encompasses all of them. And that is that our ministry is pleasing to God. Are we doing the work that God wants us to do? Are we doing the ministry? The second character, are we holding the doctrine? Are we keeping the word? Are we founded on truth? Can we look at people's teaching and say, that's error? And are we passionate enough to say so? Can we identify and can we guard ourselves from it? Can we keep that error out of our thinking and out of our out of our uh, uh, ministry philosophy, and can we keep that out of our teaching of our church? Can we, can we guard ourselves from it? And then thirdly, are we enduring? Are we going to make it? Are we going to last? Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to persevere in our faith, in our trusting God? Can we run up against opposition and be unfazed and just hold to the name of Christ? And that opposition that you face is very subtle. It's being laughed at, being excluded, being ignored, uh, being looked over for promotions or work. Um, it can be a variety of things along that line. Um, and it's amazing how quickly we crumple in front, of, um, in, in, that re- in front of peer pressure. And in that sense, most adult Americans are pretty much in, still in junior high. We crumple. In front of peer pressure. Because that's all. They're not threatening our lives. They're just threatening our popularity. And we crumple. Peer pressure. Oh, they're not going to laugh at me. They're not going to like me. I'm not going to. Really? That's as strong as your faith is? One of the aspects of the powerful church that God honors and praises is to persevere. To endure. That. Throw whatever you want at me. I'm going to stand on Christ. Whatever the cost and whatever opposition I encounter. And then, So these three aspects of ministry, doctrine, and endurance and enveloping them all needs to be a passion to do them. We need to be equally passionate about doing the ministry. I see some churches that are really passionate about that, but they're kind of so, so on doctrine. And I've seen those churches be destroyed by false teachers. But they are passionately doing some great things for God. They were building houses for the homeless. They were doing all these medical missions, but they allowed error to come in and destroy them. So we need to be passionate about doing that ministry, no doubt. But We have to have equal passion about keeping the Word of God about maintaining our truth uh, the absolute truth of God's word that we know what we believe and that we can that we can point to error and call it that and quickly remove it and then we must be passionate about our endurance that we have almost a brazenness to tell the world bring it on bring it on one guy his name was Polycarp was the pastor of one of these churches. He lived to be a very old man. In fact, he was a student of John who wrote this book. We have a very detailed account of what happened to him against the Roman government. One day out of every year, you had to come and give a sacrifice in the name of the emperor. It's called emperor worship. One day, the emperor's day. And he refused. So he's called before the... Not just a judge. At this point, his arrest was pretty phenomenal how long it took them to find this ancient guy who was in his late 90s. And they had a hard time tracking him down and arresting him, but they finally found him, and and they bring him forward before not a judge in a little courtroom, but in an arena of Romans. And they say, can you... We want you to make these declarations. The first declaration is uh, away with all atheists. And so he said, away with all atheists. And while he's doing it, he's waved to the whole crowd. <laughs> you see, they called Christians atheists because we didn't believe in all their gods. So he did that. He says, yeah, away with all atheists. I'm not an atheist. I believe in the one true and living God. And they said, well, now will you... Basically, speak against Jesus Christ and give your allegiance to the emperor and recognize his right to your worship. And he says, I can't do that. How can I do evil against one who's done me so much good? And the judge says, well, we have wild animals here we're going to bring upon you. And Polycarpus says, also bring them on. Let's see what they can do. But the animal tender guy said, it's too late, we've already used the animals and they're not hungry. (laughs) And so the judge looks at Polycarp and says, if you don't do this, I'm going to have you burned alive. And of course, the account was that Polycarp had already been revealed that through a prophetic utterance within the church that that's how he would die. And he said, you might as well start getting the wood together. So the judge ordered and they went out into the community and brought in the faggots to lay around and they were going to nail him to the beam. And he said, don't bother. I'm not going anywhere. So they just tied him. Everyone else in the past, they nailed so they couldn't run away and they tied him. And He says, they'll burn off and I won't go. And he just challenged him. Just go ahead and burn me. He was so passionate about enduring that he almost Had a brazenness about it. Do your worst. Bring it on. Bring on your wild animals. Bring on the fire. Bring it on. You're not going to do injury to me. You're going to injury to yourself. For me, you're putting me in a state of blessedness. That's what it means to be passionate about enduring. Of going out there this week and say, bring it on, people. Give me your worst. You want to spit at me? You want to laugh at me? You want to make fun of me in public? You want to humiliate me? Bring it on. Let's see what you got. I'm serving Christ. And I ain't moving. Well, they burned Polycarp. And the people didn't cheer in the end of it. They sobbed. Because they saw some things in his countenance and in his manner. And some even believe they saw his spirit leave his body and described that and it had a powerful impact upon this town to see the death of Polycarp. Only oh, we would have that kind of passion to, for our ministry, for the doing the work of God, for our doctrine, to know what we believe and to endure, to take on the opposition. Bring it on. In Christ's name, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for these accolades that you give to these churches. And we know they weren't perfect churches. We wait to be perfected in your presence. But Lord, we thank you for these statements that tell us where you want us to go, and what you want us to be doing, and how you want us to be doing it. Lord, we want to learn from them as much as we learn from their mistakes. We seldom take time to learn from what they're doing right. And so, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to consider our ways and to perfect them and to move into greater and greater fields of ministry as you give us opportunity should you find us worthy of opening the door for us that no man could shut. Lord, if there is that which would prevent us from being given that opportunity, Lord, show that to us. Where we are lacking in these principles that you want to see in your church, Lord, help us to see them. For we want to please you. We thank you for this aid, this guide for us to do so. We pray we might be heeded not only as a church, but as individuals as well. In Christ Jesus' name.